I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey listeners, if you find value in this podcast and would like to support this project, please consider signing up on Patreon, where you can support the show on a monthly basis in exchange for some extra content and behind-the-scenes updates. Just check out the link in the description or go to patreon.com forward slash podcast. I'd love to see you there. And now, on with the show, here's what's coming up next on the Liverboard Sailing Podcast. Planning is very important for your blue water trip. And it isn't just the one passage you're going to do in the rally that you're planning for. You're planning for your blue water cruising life. So plug into that knowledge, listen to other people, listen to the seminars, take advantage of the knowledge that's out there, the experts that, that are there to talk to you. And don't be afraid to delay your trip by year when you realize that your jobs list is not getting any shorter. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Annika. On the Liverboard Sailing Podcast, I chat with awesome people who live, work, and travel on their sailboats. My guests share inspiring stories and real-life advice about the lifestyle so that you and I can be better prepared for our sailing adventures. Today I'm chatting with Jeremy Wyatt from World Cruising Club, and we dive into all things blue water cruising and how to prepare for ocean crossings. World Cruising Club is the organization that manages events like the Atlantic Rally for Cruisers or the Caribbean 1500, which many of you have probably heard of. I ask Jeremy about these events and how does World Cruising Club help sailors who participate in these events, and we talk a lot about how to move forward when you have a dream of crossing an ocean. And Jeremy also mentions their upcoming Cockpit Conversations online event series, which take place now in mid-June, from June 14th to the 17th. I've put the link into these events in the description. The events are totally free to attend, and the topics sound fantastic. 
I am especially interested in the one about how to choose the right boat, so I will most definitely be attending. Now here we go with Jeremy Wyatt. So Jeremy, tell me what exactly is the World Cruising Club and what exactly is a rally? World Cruising Club is uh, a business and our business is organizing long-distance transocean sailing events. It all began back in 1986 when a gentleman called Jimmy Cornell, whom some of your listeners may well have heard of, was working as a freelance sailing journalist and he was commissioned by Yachting World magazine to write a report on boats crossing the Atlantic. And he went out to Las Palmas in the Canary Islands and interviewed lots of people who were getting ready to make the jump across the pond. And he picked up on a sense of anxiety and concern within the group about making this big trip across the Atlantic. So he came up with the idea at the time of why don't we organise a race for these cruising boats to cross the Atlantic together in a group. So that was the journal of the idea. And the very first event was called the Atlantic Race for Cruisers. And that happened in November, December of 1986. It was very successful. They had over 200 boats registered for the first event. And Jimmy thought, well, I've, I've got something good here. It's obviously popular. People want to do it. They like the idea of sailing in company. They like the security that it brings of being in a group. So it, it was re-envisaged, re-envisaged rather, as the Atlantic Rally for Cruisers. And uh, that's where the name is stuck from then, from the, from the second edition, which was in 1987 onwards. You might then say, well, why the name change? Basically, because um, to a to a sailor, a race is a specific event. You can't use your engine. It's more competitive. There are racing rules of sailing that you operate under. Whereas in cruising rally, you don't have any of that. It's much more relaxed. It's much more fun. It's about getting there safely. But we have an element of competition as well. So there's a fun competition within the rally that allows boats to have results as you would do in a sailing race. The big difference is because we're a cruising event, you can use your engine, whereas in a normal sailing race, you can't. So that's fundamentally why it's a rally, not a race. Uh, and beyond that, it's kind of whatever people want to make of it, really. We've got from one end of the spectrum, we've got uh, people who are, uh, shall we say, hugely competitive and are desperate to win at, at all costs. And then we've got the other end where they're so laid back, uh, they might not start for a day after everyone else. So it, it's a it's a, a very, very broad church. And I think that reflects the cruising world as well in that the the kind of boats that people go sailing on are hugely varied from 40-year-old sort of classic 70s designs through to uh, cutting-edge carbon fibre, straight-out-the-yard machines and everything in between. So um, it's it's a wide church to, to meet the aspirations and expectations of a huge number of people. Having said that, very typically the people that take part are what I would call true cruising or aspirational cruising sailors. So they very typically they've been planning their big offshore trip. They've been building up to do it. Maybe they've been sailing for 20 years on vacation or maybe doing charter holidays where you go and sail for a couple of weeks somewhere nice. And they've kind of built up this idea of doing their own blue water blue water voyage. And for many people, the arc is something to aim at. It's a launch window. It's a timeline. It's a progression that's going to get them out there. And so many times I have conversations with people at boat shows or seminars where they sort of say, oh, I'm still at work. And I, I always join in your seminars because you've only got to put the word sailing in an email. And it gets my attention. And so we know they're interested. They're thinking about it. They're focused on it for a long time. 
maybe six, seven, eight years before they actually get their hands on a boat and get to organize their lives and go sailing. So it's very much a journey. And for a lot of people, the, the big first ocean crossing is, is um, if you like, it's what marks them out as being a blue water cruiser. Once they've done that first ocean, then they can consider themselves to be blue water cruisers. Yeah, exactly. And I think you are very correct about that whole thing of having a timeline. Like once you know the rally is happening on a certain date, you have to make it happen for yourself. You can't just be like, oh, I'll just wait another month. We'll, we'll see. We'll see when that happens. <laughs> We're partly driven by weather. There's, there's certain time constraints to cross the Atlantic particularly, but also coming out of the east coast of North America. You've got the, the end of the hurricane season in the Caribbean Basin, which is your launch window for going south. Um, obviously, for the Americans, Thanksgiving is a key can a key date in their calendar so they want to make sure they're in the right place for thanksgiving be that back home or down in the caribbean and for people crossing the atlantic from europe to the caribbean it's very much you you need to get yourself in position ready to cross when the weather's right so you've got the issue of weather changing in the mediterranean weather changing in bay of biscay so you've got these factors to work around to get your boat to where it needs to be to then do the sail. So everything is is on a timeline, whether you think you're on a timeline or not. And then if you put into that mix the maybe giving up work and retiring or taking a career break or whatever it is you're going to do, and you've got to get hold of your boat, and you've got to commission your boat and fit it out and do everything you need to do to get your boat ready to go and live on permanently, all those things, they, they work on a, on a schedule, whether you like it or not. And um, a lot of what I do is talking to people and advising them on whether their plans are sensible and safe or whether really they're, they're, they're trying to cram too much into a short window and they're better off waiting another year. Because not everyone realizes that there's a good time to cross an ocean and a bad time to cross an ocean. Not everyone realizes how much work there's going to be in preparing their boat to get it ready for crossing an ocean. Uh, we're very much brought up in a world where you can just go to a garage and auto lot and pick up a car, put your keys in and drive away and it works like a car should work. You don't expect to have to change the batteries or put a different engine in or maybe upgrade the tyres to do, do what you want to do with it. But with a sailing boat, you're going to have to do all of that. And depending on your budget and your boat preferences and what you've done uh, before, you might have to do more or less work uh, to your boat. Very rarely, I, I don't think I can really think of an example, even with new boats where you can literally pick up the keys and sail away, you're going to have to do something to... to at the very least, you're going to have to learn your boat. If it's a new boat, you're going to have to work through the bugs that may, may be from the yard. But most people are buying pre-owned boats. And then to certain extents, they're taking a boat that may not have been used for blue water cruising before, and they're adapting it to live on permanently. So there's all sorts of changes, equipment to fit, changing sails, upgrading batteries, all sorts of things. And I don't think a lot of people realize how much is involved in that until they get their hands on their boat. And then suddenly it is time pressure. So partly it can be overwhelming. Uh, a lot of what we do is trying to encourage and guide people to focus on the, the important priorities, the things that are going to keep your boat afloat, keep it safe, keep you and the family safe. But also, are you doing it in a realistic time frame? And I think once people get hold of their boat and they're, they're really into the, the launch zone, if you like, of, of their, their blue water cruising ambition, that's the point when they realize, actually, no, I, there's no way I can cross the Atlantic in November this year. And it, what I should be doing is aiming it next year because it is you just you know, there's only so much time in a boatyard. There's particularly at the moment, there's you know, real issues with getting hold of new rigs and engines are delayed and all sorts of things. So having your boat properly prepared and and ready to put on the launch ramp 
is more important possibly than the date you're aiming to launch at. However, having a date to aim at uh, gives you, it's everything else that runs back from that. And your managing timeline is, is based on what you need to do, where you need to be by a certain time, which is dictated by predominantly by the weather. Yeah, and there's certainly a lot to prepare for a trip like that. And we'll get to the preparations in a moment. But uh, you mentioned that you talk to people about their plans and you talk at seminars and such. So what is your role with the World Cruising Club? And, and have you done rallies yourself? Yes, I have. I've sailed most of the way around the world. I've still got a little gap in my itinerary. And my most recent expedition was in uh, 2015 when I did a transatlantic with um, a friend of mine who he and his wife were taking their boat across and um, asked me if I'd like to sail with them. And normally I can't sail in the events that I organize. So I had to have a little conversation with my colleagues to say, um, do you mind if I take this season off and go and do the transat with, uh, with Chris and Helen? But he's uh, a chap I've known for a long time. And he's actually one of our seminar presenters. He's a weather router by profession. So I was quite keen to sail with him because I knew I could learn a lot as well. And he's one of these people that's done a huge amount of sailing and, and um, yeah, he's raced in the Volvo around the world race and all sorts of things. So I was very keen to go and sail with him. So I managed to organize my life to go and do a transat with Chris and Helen on there. They had a 40 foot uh, Vauquier, which is a sort of half cockpit, modernish cruising boat, traditional modern boat. If there's such a, a contradiction in terms, you know, it's fin keel, it's balanced rudder. It's not your your kind of classic uh, long keel, heavy displacement, blue water boat by any means. Um, so it's great fun to sail with them. Uh, my role is communications. So I spend a lot of time talking to people, guiding them, uh, managing our seminar program, speaking at some of the seminar programs. A lot of what we do is is a reality check. We get all sorts of people that uh, have have great dreams and great plans, and we try and keep them focused on what they need to do to get their boat ready and get it safely to the start point. And depending where they are on the sort of their learning curve, they might be eight years away from departure or they might be three months away from departure. And as I said before, so many people are, are buying boats that then need refit work and need preparation work. So a lot of what we do is kind of guiding and encouraging people on focusing on the important things, giving advice on not so much which equipment to, to choose, but setting their priorities in which equipment to choose. Spares, how to sail the boat safely. For a lot of people, it's, it's the first big transocean passage. So they won't really have done long periods of downwind sailing before. So that's a new area for most people, how they set the boat up for downwind sailing and what they're going to need as a cruiser and how they might be using their boat as a cruiser. Because that affects very much where we might direct them in in their choices. So a lot of time, a lot of my time is spent chatting to people. We do a number of seminars in recent years, like most people, we've moved those online, which has actually been very popular because the type of people that take part in our events, is it's global. We've got a big following in North America, all the, all the European countries that sail, Australia, New Zealand, and lots of places in between. So we typically get on the transatlantic arc, we'll get 35 to 40 different nationalities turning up in the event. So it's a huge, diverse range of people taking part. So by doing our events online, we've been able to reach our global audience much more effectively than we do at our traditional in-person seminars. It does, it does work from our perspective and it allows us to bring in a range of presenters to discuss different seminar topics. I'm just currently working on our next event, which is in June. It's called ARC Blue Water Cockpit Conversations. 
And what we're trying to do in that one is mimic the conversation you have with a, another cruiser when you hop on board their boat in a marina. Maybe you step on board and you sit in the cockpit and you talk about sailing, maybe have a look around their boat. We're trying to replicate that in a virtual world. So we've got uh, me and my boat, little virtual tours. We've got some club nights where we're bringing people together to chat in our virtual cockpit. And it's, it's a lot of fun. We put a sort of fake cockpit background up and people pretend they're sitting in their boats, even if they're sitting in the office. But um, it helps set the vibe for the tone of the conversation. And again, what we're trying to do is reach out to the dreamers and say, your dream is achievable and let's help guide you to make the right decision. And cockpit conversations particularly is aimed at people that probably haven't got a boat yet and are beginning to uh, think around the topic of, is it achievable? Can I do it? How do I need to organize my life to do it? What sort of boat do I need to get? So that's where we, we frame the conversation on, on that one. And we do other events where we're talking much more in detail about equipment. So we're talking to people who've got their boats and giving some guidance on how they might want to set them up and how they're going to sail them downwind. And it Very much it's about getting people to make good decisions and encouraging them to sail safely and securely. Yeah, and you mentioned that you try to reach the dreamers with this uh, cockpit conversation webinar that you have coming up. So is that basically then anyone can sign up? Obviously, you don't have to be already registered if you're just kind of still in the dreaming phase. Anyone can sign up. Um, the more, the better, really. Uh, and it is it is aimed at the dreamers. And it, it's it, for some people, it's a reality check. For others, it's um, I describe it a bit like a sort of revivalist church meeting. Because if, if you're out there and you, you're sitting at work and you're planning your, your blue water cruise and you're scribbling on the back of an envelope now and again when you come up with ideas and thoughts, I doubt anyone else in your office or work environment is going to share that dream. They, they'll play golf at the weekend or go and do something else, who knows what, but it probably won't be sailing. So you're alone in your little bubble of planning your, your adventure and your escape. And it's very nice to get together with other people that share the same dream and share the same ambition. And that's where, if you like, the, the, the revivalist meeting comes in. Everyone can can shout hallelujah together because they, they're they talking with a shared vision of what they want to do, which is go sailing. Now, they, there are multiple ways of doing that and multiple shapes of boat and multiple budgets. So the last thing I'm going to do is tell people the perfect way to do it. But hopefully what we can do is encourage them to think about what they want to get from their trip um, and a, an approach to it that's going to be workable for them. Yeah, I love that idea. All oh, that is such a good good concept. Probably the hardest question I get asked any of these events is, what should my cruising budget be? And it's it's just impossible to answer because for a start, have you bought your boat yet? Um, if, if you've bought your boat, well, that's most of your money spent already. Uh, and, and then it's, well, what do I need to live on? Well, the next question is, where are you going? How many people are you going? What kind of lifestyle have you got? What kind of boat have you got? Is it one that needs a lot of maintenance regularly and it's going to be expensive to dock or are you happy sitting at anchor and, and saving money that way? So there's, there's so many variables in the mix. So what we try and do is get people to think about their cruising lifestyle um, and answer their own question for them. And usually the, the answer to the money question turns out, well, people generally spend what they can afford and, and they make it work. Yeah, exactly, exactly. The budget has its limitations and, you know, you'll make the lifestyle fit that limitation. Exactly. People make it make it fit. But it's having the, the passion to go out and do it in the first place. You mentioned earlier that for the Atlantic Rally there, you know, you have about 30 to 40 different nationalities. And that was the first one that was ever organized. Is that still the most popular? Yes, it is. Um, it really is the granddaddy of all the events. It's been running the longest. It's the most popular. 
to the extent we've now kind of diversified it into several routes. We're constrained by physical space at the start in Las Palmas in Gran Canaria because obviously all the boats are together in one place, so you, you need dock space to put them all in. So what we've done is basically extended the period of it. So we have another route that leaves two weeks ahead called Arc plus Cape Verdes. So that goes from the Canary Islands down to Cape Verde and then crosses to make landfall in Grenada. And then the, the main route, the traditional arc, leaves from Las Palmas direct to St. Lucia in the Caribbean, where it's always been going uh, ever since the early days. By staggering arrival of boats into Las Palmas, we can, we can make more room in the marina. In fact, we use the same berth twice. And then having different arrival points in the Caribbean means we're not overwhelming facilities at the arrival ports. And then again, because both of those routes have been very popular and very oversubscribed, uh, we've added a third option now called Arc January. No prizes for guessing when that goes. So it effectively replicates the Arc, which traditionally goes in late November, and it repeats the route and goes in early January after the um, Spanish New Year holidays have settled down, and then we cross uh, again to make landfall in St. Lucia. So those have been running for a number of years and growing in popularity. So each year we're taking somewhere in the region of 350 boats across the Atlantic with the additions of the uh, Atlantic Arc plus the Caribbean 1500, which is the same principle, but it's going from east coast of the US from Chesapeake Bay down to make landfall in British Virgin Islands in northern end of the uh, Leeward Islands chain. And then the, the concept has grown beyond that. There's, a, there's a, what we loosely call the return arc, which is Arc Europe, which goes from the uh, North American side of the Atlantic across to the European side. So that's it's only a return if you're leaving from Caribbean and you're coming back to Europe. But if you're in North America, it's not, not a return. It's your launch pad to go towards the Mediterranean or Europe. And that goes in uh, May, June, crossing into make landfall in southern Portugal. And then um, we also have a round-the-world trip, which again has grown in popularity. When we relaunched it in 2008, it was every two years, and now it's every year. So we have 30 boats go around the world with us but again it's oversubscribed and overpopular so we've we've effectively split that now where we have the circumnavigator group so they go first uh, again because they're constrained by weather if they're going to do a blue water around the world circuit in a, effectively a single go you've got certain times of year you need to be in certain parts of the world so they go first and then we have a second group the world arc pacific fleet and they're leaving in mid-february uh, so they have an extended period just cruising the Pacific. And these are for boats that are aiming to spend several seasons out there. So they finish in Fiji or Australia and they don't go on across the Indian Ocean. So yes, lots of people want to go sailing. Lots of people like the idea of going sailing in rallies. They like the comfort and security of sailing with other boats. They like the fact that we bring our knowledge and experience to the table for them to benefit from, be that advising them on safety equipment to have or crew training or tips on setting your boat up or spares to carry, all these things go into the mix. And then you add into that the fact that when you've got a group of like-minded sailors together, there's normally a party or two along the way. So it's very sociable. Yeah, it certainly sounds like there are a lot of benefits for someone who's maybe, you know, doing a bigger crossing for the first time. And, you know, like you mentioned that in theory, anybody can participate. But in practice, though, what do you require? Obviously, you can't just walk up and say, I want to Join a rally. Like, what do you require in terms of like crew experience or the boat size or that kind yeah, of thing? Exactly. It, it it varies on route to route. Um, and I do occasionally have to talk down some people whose ambitions are perhaps bigger than their skills. 
because we we want people to do things that are safe. Having said that, everyone's got to stretch themselves from time to time, but you can do it in a safe environment. So we limit it by boat size. It depends on the route you're doing. If you're coming out from North America, coming to Europe or to the Caribbean, the minimum boat size is 35 feet. If you're coming from Europe to the Caribbean, the minimum boat size is 27 feet. Having said that, we very rarely get boats of that size anymore. Um, it's not that the boats can't do the trip. It's just there are more bigger boats out on the market and people are relatively better off and medium-sized boats are relatively cheaper compared to how they were 20 years ago. So now we typically see average boat size in the low 40s, uh, so 42, 43 feet in one group. And then we'll have a second group that will be in the sort of 50, 55 foot range, very typically. And the other big thing we've noticed is the number of catamarans has, has hugely increased. Um, we used to get one or two, and now we get 30, 40 in each, in, in each of the arcs. So that's a huge growth area. So, so we're limiting participation by boat size, and we also have a qualifying passage so you have to have sailed for the Ark, Transatlantic Ark, you have to have sailed your boat to Las Palmas yourself. And bearing in mind the Canary Islands are 600 miles out from European mainland or African coast, you've got a delivery passage to get down there. And basically, if you can't sail your boat to the Canaries, you're not going to be able to sail across the Atlantic because actually that's the hardest part of the trip. You've got a lot more weather challenges, you've got a lot more navigation hazards, you've got a lot more tides and current which you don't actually have transatlantic. So the filter is you have to get to the Canaries. For the North American events, it's a passage of 250 nautical miles nonstop. And again, what we found, uh, particularly as boats that have been based maybe on the East Coast or around Chesapeake or Florida, they've done lots of sailing, but it's generally been day sailing or the odd overnight passage because it's actually quite hard on that coast to go anywhere with any distance until you go south to the Caribbean. So encouraging people maybe to do a sail up to New England and do it may be coastal sailing, but it is non-stop overnight sailing. So they're used to two or three days of watch keeping, of the coping with fatigue, of coping with the uh, the navigation, um, coping with the weather changes, and it kind of sets them up for if they can cope with three days of that kind of sailing, they can cope with an eight to ten day passage. It's basically the filter, and then we also do require them to have insurance. Uh, third-party liability insurance, um, which is another filter in that the, the insurance companies are looking with a different set of eyes at the risk. But yes, we do occasionally have to have a serious conversation with someone and say, really, you're not up to this trip. Um, and usually they know, but by the time they've done their passage and scared themselves with this getting to the start port, they know they're not ready. It doesn't take much push to encourage them to wait a year and do some more practice and come back again. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
plushcare.com slash weight loss. All right. Well, say somebody has done their practice, is ready to go. And say somebody is thinking now when we are in April, May, thinking about signing up for the November Atlantic Rally. Is that too late? Like how far in advance do people need to register for some of these more popular ones that you mentioned, like the Caribbean 1500? For the transatlantic arc, you need to get on the list as soon as possible. We have a, a mailing list. We invite people to join and register their interest. And then we launch the event typically in September of the previous year. So for 2023, we'll open registration in September 22. And typically we're full by Christmas. So uh, get in early if you want to be sure of a space. To be sure, get on the mailing list. Please don't leave it until a few months before you go because I'm afraid you'll be disappointed. Especially if you have a larger boat. Um, we can sometimes squeeze in the smaller ones. But if you turn up with a 55, 60-foot catamaran, there's no way we're going to be able to squeeze you in. Yeah, and that is really good to know. So say somebody's signing up, you know, it's almost a year or over a year to their actual event. What happens uh, in that year of preparation? Like what kind of, say, pre-departure support do you offer and when does that actually start? Well, it basically starts from as soon as you get in, involved with the seminar program, um, which may be several years before you actually sign up for a rally. A lot of the seminars are available to watch again via our members' websites. So you can log in and go and re revisit particular topics. We repeat the program in the spring every year. And so you may have maybe watched some online, then you can attend a, a physical one. And then we published the Rally Handbook, which is an event-specific document, which tells you how to prepare for your particular route. And a lot of the sections are general information about preparing your boat so there'll be sections on how to plan your provisioning and how to organize your refrigeration and how to stow the food on board the boat and how to plan your spares and where to put them and doing a stowage plan all these kind of really practical advice that is there to help you when you're in account down to your own trip and that's where we find people need more support because that that's when the um the lists get so long you forget which list you're writing things on and which one you're crossing them off um, particularly if people are still trying to, they have, maybe haven't retired or still haven't finished work at that point and trying to juggle getting down to their boat at a weekend to, to do jobs on it with doing their day job type thing, it can get a bit stressful. So having some sort of guidance and timelines and checklists does make life easier for them. So that comes out in the, in the spring for the uh, November sailing season. And you mentioned earlier that obviously for many people, these rallies are their sort of first introduction to making ocean passages and then ocean crossings. So what kind of support do you offer during the sale? I know there's, you know, you get together a couple of days before the actual start date. But what if, you know, once they set off, what happens then? The pre-departure period is actually quite important because during that period, we're checking that the boats have got the equipment on board we require them to have. So it's not just a case of saying, yeah, sure, I've got a life raft. We actually want to look at your life raft and check it's on board the boat and check it's got enough spaces, the number of people you've got on board, check you've got life jackets, check your comms equipment works. So we're doing all of that in the pre-departure period. Plus there's various social events to kind of get people going and briefings about the weather, particularly how the trade winds are looking or how the Gulf Stream crossing is going to be. So that all happens in the pre-start period. Once boats go to sea, primary role really is communicating weather updates to them and the positions of all the other boats. We put a tracking device on board every boat 
So we're then uh, retransmitting that information back out to the boat so they can see who's around them. They're also sent a weather forecast uh, every day, a routed forecast for the passage they're on with 24 hours and 48 hours of what the weather's doing. Plus our weather forecast company also looking out for any events that could be building that we need to notify people where they may need to change their routing. So that's all going on in the background. And then because we require all the boats to have a form of long-range communications, we're communicating with the fleet, sending them out these updates. They can communicate with each other. And so if you like, there's, there's the, the practical side, which is the weather and the position and, and dealing with emergencies that crop up. And then there's the social side of it, which is sort of updates from boats and so on. But generally, it's um, it's if there's a serious emergency that requires our involvement or re- we're required to maybe bring boats closer together so they could help each other. It's very typically what happens because we can see where all the boats are. We can communicate with all the boats. We know who would be nearest, who's best able to support. It might be something like transferring fuel or spare parts. Or We've had all sorts of incidents um, around that where other boats are able to help you, but they don't know you've got a problem until we come and call them up and say, there's a boat 40 miles away from you that needs help. And that's generally what we're doing during the, the ocean passages. And then getting ready for the, for the finish because it's... The one of the nicest things about doing an arc rally is is the arrival. Um, it sounds silly, but if you've done a passage on your own, you get somewhere and you wash yourself and you go ashore and you check in with customs and you're terribly excited because you've just done 10, 12, 14, 18, 21 day passage and you've maybe crossed your first ocean and it's brilliant, but there's no one to tell. There's no one to share your excitement with. There's just a guy taking your lines on the dock maybe and a bored customs official that really doesn't appreciate what you've done. Whereas if you're doing it with a group of other people that understand what you've done you get a tremendous welcome when you come in because they've all done exactly the same thing so i think the welcome's very very important as well it makes you feel like you really have done a major trip it's not just um, going out for a day sale oh yeah for sure it's definitely worth a little celebration at the end absolutely big celebrations (laughs) depends on the on the crew shall we say Exactly, exactly. Well, I'm sure there is a list of safety equipment that you require everything or everybody to have. But I'm curious, is there any items that come to mind when, you know, the people are doing this for the first time, you know, they're kind of upgrading from that weekend and coastal sailor status? There's a couple of things that will catch you out if you've been a coastal sailor. The first thing I would say is the list is not secret. It's on our website. So if you go to any of the rally pages on worldcruising.com, you'll see a, bu- uh, a menu item on the left-hand side that says safety. If you click that, you can download the list. The key things that quite often cause confusion are the life raft. We require boats to have an offshore life raft. And this means one to the ISO 9650 standard, which is the International Standards Organization certification for leisure rafts. Uh, there are two types of ISO raft. There's a type one and a type two. A type 1 is the offshore raft, a type 2 is a coastal raft, which is only suitable for use up to 60 nautical miles. So having a look at your raft and understanding what you've got and realising that a life raft is is a piece of equipment that will wear out over time and need replacing. So the 20-year-old raft you bought with a boat won't be suitable for taking transatlantic, I'll tell you that now. So that's one thing that quite often causes confusion because there also there are several standards applying to life rafts you may see one called SOLAS, which is the Commercial Marine uh, Safety of Lives at Sea standard. So you can, as a leisure user, have a SOLAS raft. Uh, and there was a previous standard, the ISAF standard, that was introduced before the ISO standard came out. So 
there are various rafts out there. Plus, there's a very old one that um, called Ocean Racing Council ORC that isn't accepted anymore. So, understandably, we get asked lots of questions about life rafts. The other thing that catches people out again with this transition from coastal to uh, offshore is the requirement for an EPIRB. Again, if you're into a mobile phone range, it's not necessarily something you would think of having, but it's a mandatory item for all transocean events. So this is a satellite distress beacon that will automatically give out your position to the Coast Guard should you activate it. Uh, and then you must have a life jacket PFD for every person on board, and we require these to have various uh, extra items, a crotch strap, a uh, spray hood, a whistle, a light, and an AIS beacon. Again, AIS beacons for life jackets cause confusion because there's also something on the market called a PLB, a personal locator beacon, um, which is a baby EPIRB, which is a very good piece of equipment. It sends a signal up to the satellite and the Coast Guard know that an EPIRB has gone off. The problem with a PLB is you can't track the signal from on board your own boat, whereas an AIS beacon your AIS receiver on board your own boat will show you the target in the water within three to five miles. So um, literally, you'll, if you fall off a boat, the, one, the nearest boat to rescue you is the one you've fallen off. So having an AIS that will alert your own boat is one of the important requirements that we have. And then everything else on there I would describe as, as general. Uh, we always get some questions from people about bilge pumps because we require manually operated pumps because you may your power supply may go off and you know, the boat may be sinking so your engine's flooded and your electrics have gone. Um, things like that where people just aren't, they don't understand what the equipment is used for or, or how it's used. So there's often questions about that. And again, one of the topics we cover in the seminars is explaining the equipment requirements, going through the different things, explaining options. Man of a board equipment is a classic uh, one. There's, there's lots of different bespoke systems for recovering crew back on board boats and marking targets and all sorts of things and so there's a lot of confusion as to how they actually function and what the purpose is so talking people through the options how they work and how they would use them on board the boat is quite an important part of what we do yeah yeah for sure and i understand obviously you know you keep tabs on all the boats that are out there and who are participating so you have a bit of a you know historical statistics on all the boats that that have participated in these rallies and i'd love to hear your thoughts on this because obviously there's a lot of talk online like what is a you know a proper boat to cross an ocean with and <laughs> um well what's a proper boat is the one you can afford probably um there's lots of schools of thoughts about boat types what i would suggest is it very much depends on where you're going to go a lot of people say oh, you can't cross an ocean on a fin keel balanced rudder production boat. Well, you can because hundreds of them do it every year. Would you go up to northern latitudes on that boat? No, probably not. I wouldn't. Are you going to be crossing anywhere out of season? Are you going to be in somewhere where you might get caught out by bad weather or, or storm force winds, hurricanes, that kind of thing? So the thing about modern production boats is you have to understand the limitations of the boat you've bought. And I think that's where people get into problems is they don't realise that their boat has a more restricted envelope to sail it in than perhaps the traditional heavy displacement, long keel blue water boat that get you out of trouble, sea kind boat. So it's understanding what you've got. And if you appreciate that, then you understand the limits of where you can sail that boat. Within that, there, there's a whole discussion about um, how big, how small, how many hulls. And I'm not prepared to go down that route because I'll no doubt get lots of comments from your listeners about he said this and I, my boat isn't like that. All I would say is is when people are looking at boats, especially if they're when they're putting their hard-earned cash into buying a boat, there's a tendency to buy one that's too small because 
traditionally if you're coastal sailing your weekend sailing it's it's handy to keep it under a certain size because it fits in the slip at the marina and you only nip out for a weekend anyway so why do you need xyz when you're living on board a boat permanently it's surprising how quickly what you think of as a big boat becomes fairly normal and the other thing well two things you're getting one is waterline length which gives you safe passage making speed and the other is internal volume and remember this boat is going to be your home you're going to be living on board it so you'll have a lot more stuff than you do normally take on board a boat when you're just on holiday for a couple of weeks or you're going weekend sailing there's a lot more spare parts there's extra sails there's two or three anchors a spare chain there's mooring orbs there's fenders there's outboard motors there's dinghy then the spare dinghy your friend's just given you is all your fishing gear there's all the food there's all the crew's clothing there's a lot of stuff to put on board your boat and whilst modern boats are very well designed and they can cram a lot into a small space. When you're living on board a boat, you'll use that space up quite quickly, especially if you're then preparing for a passage and you've got to put extra water on board and maybe you're taking extra fuel and so on. So I would advise people to get as much boat as they can afford in terms of length because length gives you volume and volume will pay huge dividends in terms of comfort of living on board the boat. However, there's a caveat to that and that's don't make your boat heavy. Be very, very careful to understand the design displacement of your boat so often we see boats that are grossly overladen and that is a safety risk you're putting extra strain on the rig it wasn't designed for it the rudder bearings weren't designed for it so be mindful of how heavy your boat is especially if you have a catamaran because a heavy catamaran is an unsafe catamaran so don't overload your boat get as much boat length as you can afford because that's where you get your volume from and also it gives you passage making speed after that you can choose whatever you like <laughs> Those are really good practical tips to, to consider about the boat. But as we wrap up, would you have some tips or advice for anybody who's now starting to think about like, hey, these rallies sound like a cool thing. Maybe I should uh, start thinking about doing one. Yep. Do your research. Um, um, if you're not a sociable person, you're probably not going to enjoy social sailing with other people. That's rule number one. I do occasionally meet people. I think, why are you here? Because you're not enjoying it. Whatever you do, you're just not the kind of person that does things in a group. Therefore, you know, if, if you... If you aren't a group person, don't do a group event. But if you are a group person, if you enjoy the company of others, you enjoy the challenges of meeting other people, it's, it can be great fun. Get involved early because, as I think I've, I've hopefully made the point, planning is very important for your blue water trip. And it isn't just the one passage you're going to do in the rally that you're planning for. You're planning for your blue water cruising life. So plug into that knowledge, listen to other people, listen to the seminars, take advantage of the knowledge that's out there, the experts that, that are there to talk to you. And don't be afraid to delay your trip by year when you realize that your jobs list is not getting any shorter because the people that rush it end up not enjoying themselves. The whole point about cruising is you're going to these places to enjoy them, to enjoy living on board your boat, being with the people you have on board. You're not going there to fix engines and repair stuff. You don't go sailing to lovely places because you like putting your head in the bilge and trying to mend a pump. You do it because of the place you're going to. So keep keep that in mind. Keep focused on where you want to be and how you want to enjoy your boat and put the effort and time into preparing your boat before you go because you'll have a much more enjoyable cruising life if you do. A properly prepared boat will pay you huge dividends, huge returns in an enjoyable and relaxed cruising life. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Jeremy, for sharing all this information with us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I look forward to hopefully meeting some of your listeners along the way soon. I hope you got some good tips out of this one. 
Jeremy shared some really good advice and some practical tips, which is what this podcast is all about. So I'd say this was definitely a success. So thank you for listening and tuning in again this week. I hope to see you at the virtual cockpit conversation series. Uh, it sounds like a lot of fun, so I'll definitely be there. And next week, it's time for yet another adventure. So stay tuned and bye for now. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.